Hi there. You're listening to Melanie Morgan from the Globe Gazette. And we are back for another episode of 2021, 10 Successful Years of the Historic Park Inn. Joining us here today is Joanne Hardinger, an Education Committee member of Ride on the Park and a longtime docent. Welcome, Joanne. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. My topic for this edition of our podcast covers the decline and the struggle to save the hotel from 1920 to 2005, a span of 85 years. When the City National Bank and the Park and Hotel first opened in 1910, it was co-owned by Mason City attorneys James Blythe and James Markley. They had commissioned Frank Lloyd Wright from Chicago to design their multifunctioning commercial building in his acclaimed modernist style, which was a progressive statement in keeping with a community that was experiencing tremendous growth in industry, business, and in population. During its first 10 years, the park and hotel and restaurant was leased and operated by J.H. Sundell. The park and hotel was the fashionable place to stay, and it fared very well. But as Pat Schultz reported in the previous podcast, a newer and much larger downtown hotel, the Hanford Hotel, had opened just a few blocks north in 1922 with private bathrooms in each room. It attracted business away from the Park Inn Hotel that had smaller rooms and shared bathrooms as societal norms had been changing. During the 1920s, it didn't help that the farming industry experienced a major economic downturn that affected the entire region as well as the Mason City community. I would note that four of Mason City's five banks had failed when farmers couldn't repay their debts, including rights adjoining City National Bank. After 1920, the Park and Hotel changed hands nine times within the next 25 years. Bowers and Swanson managed the hotel after Sundell, but only for a few years, attributing competition from the Hanford for poor business. Then the hotel was in G.D. Fletcher's hands for a year, from 1923 to 1924. But with no upgrades to the property since 1910, it was outdated and declining. From 1925 to 1934, Alfred Butters took the reins and did some remodeling mainly to the restaurant and dining areas. During his management, the art glass skylights were were removed from the formal dining area. Also during this time, for about seven years, the restaurant was run by Chu and Wong, offering Chinese dishes of all sorts. While Butters was managing the hotel and restaurant in 1926, the adjoining City National Bank was undergoing a major alteration in order to convert the strongbox structure into ground level retail spaces and to construct an additional floor of rental offices. In 1934, James Blythe sold his half of the property to his business partner, James Markley. Markley leased the hotel to Blanche Pence and then the restaurant to Joshua Gillum. A year later, S.M. Decker took over the management of the cafe. He did a major update to the interior of the restaurant, installing new equipment, he added air conditioning, and reopened it as the Park Inn Lounge Cafe. It was advertised as having a new, luxurious atmosphere. Meanwhile, that same year, a successful business manager from Kansas City, R. McGee, set about to redecorate the hotel. 
Unfortunately, he was killed in an auto accident four years later. So his wife, Barnett, operated the hotel until 1945. At some point during these upgrade attempts, the warm finish of the pine wood was all painted white. When Markley himself died in 1939, the hotel and restaurant property became under the ownership of his daughter, Marion Markley Page. She sold the property to Mr. and Mrs. Clarence Ellingson in 1945. They were from St. James, Minnesota, former owners of a tavern and a cafe. They would now be the new owners and managers of the Park and Hotel and its restaurant. The Ellingsons moved their family into the hotel, utilizing seven rooms in the former staff quarters on the second and third floors. A near disaster occurred in 1946 when a discarded cigarette started a fire in one of the guest rooms while the occupants weren't there. Another resident discovered the smoke, tried to put out the fire, but was overcome with smoke. By the time the firemen came, everything in the room had burned, but they were able to contain it to that one room, thankfully, because the plaster of the walls and the ceiling didn't burn as readily. During the 27 years of Ellingson's ownership, little if any improvements had been made to the property and it was run down. Without structural maintenance to the building since it was built, the roof was leaking, which contributed to mold growth. And with little or no business, room rates were as low as $3 for a single room or $11 a night for a double room. Word on the street was, don't stay there. The cafe lounge had a shady reputation. The bank foreclosed on the property in 1972. After 62 years, here sat a building so significant it influenced the direction of modern architecture worldwide. It was one of a hundred of Frank Lloyd Wright's modernist designs that was published in Germany in 1910 and what was called the Vosmuth Portfolio. This collection of Wright's revolutionary architectural designs up to 1910 influenced the work of 20th century modernists, including Le Corbusier, Mies van der Rohe, and Walter Gropius, who had founded the Bauhaus in Germany in 1919. It was and is the last standing hotel of the six that Wright had designed. Its massing had been a preview of Wright's Chicago Midway Gardens and the magnificent Imperial Hotel that he designed in Tokyo. The Imperial Hotel was completed in 1923, but demolished in 16, excuse me, demolished in 1968. Two of Wright's hotels in Montana no longer existed. One was the Como Orchard Clubhouse Inn, and the other was the Bitterroot Inn, built in 1909, that was destroyed by fire in 1924. The 1911 Lake Geneva Hotel in Wisconsin was demolished in 1960. A grand hotel designed for Estes Park in Colorado called the Horseshoe Inn was never built. Then there's the Arizona Biltmore, built in 1928 by Albert Chase MacArthur. MacArthur was a former employee of Wright's from 1907 to 1909 in his Oak Park studio. For a while, MacArthur partnered with Wright's son, Lloyd Wright, in development ventures out west, borrowing Wright's original textile block construction methods and other features of Wright's. The Arizona Biltmore stands as a testimony to Wright's ingenuity, but MacArthur holds the title as the primary architect. 
A flicker of light emerged in 1970 when a community-wide interest in preservation began following demolition of several of Mason City's older historic buildings. The Preservation Act of 1966 had been created by Lyndon B. Johnson, establishing the National Registration of Historic Places and State Historic Preservation Offices, making federal funds available to rehabilitate and restore historically significant structures. In 1972, a Mason City Citizens Committee chaired by Shirley Crosman succeeded in having the City National Bank and Park and Hotel added to the National Register of Historic Places. This prompted Richard Morrell, a businessman and jewelry store owner, to purchase the hotel with plans to turn the second and third floors into 18 individual apartments, rent out the first floor as office space, and turn the basement into a restaurant. Morell has, has, excuse me, Morell had some of the non-historic materials removed that had been added over the years, and he kept the original mahogany wood that still existed and the right designed louvered doors. In order to create the apartments, some of the original walls were removed to enlarge the rooms into apartments. Stoves, refrigerators, sinks, and cabinets were all installed. The Franklin Wright Apartments, as they were called, rented quickly, and the first floor was occupied by Piper Jaffrey and the Chamber of Commerce. Morell used the designation of the hotel's historic value to acquire a matching grant from the State Historic Society of Iowa to fund this work. The funds went primarily to the interior changes, while water damage to the structure and mold issues continued as the leaking roof was not addressed. One of Morell's efforts to clean the exterior of the building was to sandblast the brick and acid etch the colored tiles. Both of those procedures were damaging and unacceptable to current standards of historic preservation. After renovation funds had been spent, the income generated from Morell's investment did not adequately cover operating expenses, and it was far from producing the funds needed to restore the deteriorating historic building. In 1989, after Morell's 17-year run of ownership, the bank foreclosed on the property a second time. Like passing a hot potato, the bank sold the park and apartments to Clear Lake developer Les Nelson for $52,000. Nelson continued to rent the apartments after updating furnishings, but he was criticized for ignoring the significance of the structure. Nelson applied for a matching grant of $60,000 from the State Historic Resource Development Program to ease complaints, intending to use it towards restoration, but he failed to come up with the match. It was difficult to again sell the public on supporting a previously failed attempt to rehabilitate the property. In 1996, the Park and Hotel was on the Iowa's Historic Preservation Alliance's list as one of Iowa's 10 most endangered properties. In 1999, as the property was molding into disrepair and housing pigeons, the city urged Les Nelson to sell the hotel to the Frank Lloyd Wright Building Conservancy, a national organization dedicated to finding funding resources and preserving remaining right structures. The Conservancy would place a historic preservation easement on the property to protect it from being significantly altered or destroyed, and then would sell it to a Wisconsin utility company called Heartland Properties that had an investment 
in historic property, an interest in investing historic property. Heartland would direct the project and would work in partnership with the city to restore the hotel and ensure its survival to function as 10 affordable apartments, proposing the city provided 10 parking spaces and helped to raise funds. A cost analysis for the project initially came to 1.7 million with the projected cost of parking spaces estimated at 125,000. Yet uncommitted, the Mason City Planning and Zoning Commission established a historic preservation overlay for the downtown area in order to be able to apply for federal and state funds. Speakers, forums, and editorials urged support for the Park Inn's potential as an untapped resource, as a golden goose to spur economic development. Meanwhile, Gary Bludgett, a Republican representative from Clear Lake, sponsored a bill to allocate $200,000 specifically for the repair of the hotel's roof. It was approved by the Iowa House of Representatives and was waiting to be used. But further discovery of the extent of the hotel's deteriorated structure revealed it would take more than $1.7 million to restore it. In addition, Heartland soon expanded their proposal to include restoration of the former City National Bank property, raising the price tag to $7.15 million. Harder yet to swallow, the city planner estimated parking spaces would be $900,000, not $125,000, as Heartland had originally estimated. Excitement was now face-to-face -face with these insurmountable obstacles. Continued debate was going to further delay needed repairs. In desperation, one council person suggested the city purchase the property from Les Nilsen in order to authorize the repair of the roof with the state grant of 200,000 and then sell it to Heartland. After two more months of deliberation, the city council moved away from the Heartland proposal and approached the Mason City Foundation, a local organization managing the development of Music Man Square. The Mason City Foundation agreed to do museum quality restoration. For some council members, the home team advantage was more comfortable to work with than Heartland, but not all agreed. The city purchased the property from Les Nelson for 75,000 and turned it over to the foundation, retaining 7% of the ownership in order to receive the state funds to repair the roof. The foundation was to repay the city for the initial purchase and complete the restoration in five years to discourage further delays. Work on the roof began immediately with the previously allocated $200,000 for the roof repair. As the Park Inn Hotel was receiving increased recognition, smaller grants came in for feasibility studies to direct its future use. Consultants helped to determine that a boutique hotel would have the best chance of survival. In 2001, the foundation received a $500,000 grant from Save America's Treasures on the condition it could be matched. Funding from Save America's Treasures only went to projects that were deemed to be irreplaceable treasures and in need of preservation because of their historic and cultural value to future generations. The amount would go towards the exterior structural improvements, such as removing rusty fire escapes, repointing brick, cleaning of brick and replacing where needed, applying new stucco to the third floor, putting in new drainage systems, tiling the roof ridges, structural improvements for the basement, 
construction of a protective cover for the skylights, restoration of French doors and repairing and replacing casement windows. Anderson Windows made a significant in-kind donation with a contribution of 72 art glass casement windows, a value of $185,000. If you do the math, that's $2,500 per window. In 2004, the State Historic Society of Iowa granted $100,000 towards needed matching funds. Now, three years after accepting the restoration project, the Mason City Foundation was able to match the funds for the Save America's Treasures grant and the desperately needed work on all the exterior structure improvements finally began. But as the five-year deadline approached, the hotel still faced many obstacles towards a full museum quality restoration and the foundation was getting pressure to hire a project manager to speed things up. To the foundation's credit, they had come a long way building support, raising funds, and applying for grants that can take months to be awarded or not, and the time it takes to restore historic property can be a painfully long process. To complicate things, the Mason City Foundation's primary mission was to promote and preserve the heritage of Meredith Wilson. The Music Man Square, at the same time, was undergoing detailed construction and opened to the public in 2002 which may have contributed to the concern that the foundation was not in position to give the rehabilitation of the hotel the attention it needed. Frustration on all sides resulted in the foundation withdrawing from the rehabilitation project, putting it back in the city's hands. I guess desperate people do desperate things. As a publicity stunt, the council advertised that the park and hotel was for sale on eBay, hoping to generate international attention in search of a benefactor. But the feedback was negative, sending a message that the citizens of Mason City had little appreciation for its historic architectural treasure, an impression that couldn't be further from the truth. The saga of the history of the Park Inn is full of drama, angst, desperation, and hope, but the waves of determination never stop coming. Imagine sitting near an ocean, watching the waves on a beach. One by one, they crash onto the shore, some reaching far up the smooth sand and others pulling back quickly, but each followed by another and another wave. Resilient, persistent, and unrelenting, an army of waves succeeds in reaching its goal. This message of resilience is what Frank Lloyd Wright wrote over all of the surfaces of his hotel and building. Taken from Japan, the repeated fan or wave pattern abstractly represents the ocean on ancient maps. The repeated wave is a well-known pattern in Japan that symbolizes strength through persistence. Japanese patterns and colors are abstract representations of nature and have specific meanings and applications. Wright was well aware of this. The next chapter of the Historic Park Inn started in March of 2005. It begins with the formation of an amazing citizens group that was just as determined, resourceful, and ultimately as successful as Wright's walls had predetermined. They stepped up to the challenge and raised the bar as high as it could go. Stay tuned for the next podcast on the Park Inn Hotel, given by Peggy Bang, and fasten your seatbelts for the ride.